by talking about angels and how important angels are spiritually. There's a pretty cool verse in Hebrews that talks about people having guardian angels. But it said Jesus is more important than angels. Uh, and then it talks about Moses. And Moses was really important because Moses helped us understand in the Old Testament. Moses gave us the law. Uh, Moses is pretty important, but Jesus is more important than Moses. Uh, and Hebrews talks about the high priest. The high priest is really important, but Jesus is more important than the high priest. And it talked about the tabernacle, well, the tabernacle and the temple. That, you know, that's how we learn to, to come to God, but Jesus is more important than that. And we get to the point where we say Jesus is the most important figure who's ever lived. Uh, but then the question arises, well, why, why would he have to die for our sins? Um, you know, Moses never had to die for anyone's sins. Uh, the high priest was never sacrificed, Joshua, David, you know, the greatest of the great in the Old Testament. None of them were sacrificed for us. Why did Jesus have to die? Hebrews 9 and 10 give us the answer. I'm going to start at verse 9. I'm just going to read through all of verse 9. I'm going to read through the first 10 verses of, uh, of chapter 10, uh, and then we are, uh, we're going to teach through and try to answer this question. Why did Jesus die, um, and what does that do for us? Now, the first covenant. By the way, this should all sound real familiar now. Uh, Hebrews is a tough book, but some of these things should begin to sound familiar after our last hour of teaching. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and for the earthly sanctuary. We've learned those. A tabernacle was set up, first room, lampstand, table, consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. We've seen that. In your mind, you know what that is now. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. You've seen that too. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that abutted stone tablets. That's the Ten Commandments of the Covenant. Uh, above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. Uh, but we can't discuss these things in detail now. The author says, I don't have time to talk about all this. Why? Because it takes about an hour and 20 minutes. Uh, we, just got done, uh, we just got done doing it. Uh, verse 9. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on ministry. Talked about that. But only the high priest entered the inner room and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people uh, that they had committed in ignorance. Uh, we talked about that too. That's called the Day of Atonement. Uh, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place uh, had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning, still separation. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered, they weren't able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, uh, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Verse 11, but when Christ came, by the way, circle that word Christ. Uh, Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, or the English word Messiah, um, which Jesus was. So Christ and Messiah, interchangeable there. But when Messiah came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through a greater and more perfect tabernacle that wasn't made with human hands. That is to say, it wasn't a part of this creation. He didn't enter by means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. You need to circle that. Why did Jesus have to die? We begin to understand what was needed for him to go to God for us. Thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. Got that. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so we may serve the living God. So that was very quick there, but you need to understand 
He just said the, the Old Testament sacrifices cleaned us on the outside, but they didn't change us on the inside so we could live for God. When Jesus' blood was sacrificed, God is now able to change us from the inside so that we can actually live for God. Verse 15, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a, what are those two words? You know what that is now. Underline that. You should get that. That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody dies. It never takes effect while the one made is living. This is why, ev this is why even uh, the first covenant wasn't put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, branches of hyssop, we know what that is, sprinkled on the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. We studied that too. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then. For the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ didn't enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter a heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he's appeared once for all, at the culmination of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he'll appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Chapter 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities himself. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, remind you that you're separated from God. Verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you weren't pleased. So I said, Here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you don't desire, nor were you pleased with, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first, we could say, covenant to establish the second covenant. And by that will, we've been made holy. We've been made. What did, what did God say? Be holy because I am holy. The author says it finally happened. We were finally changed from the inside, made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, the key to this whole text is found in verse 15. I want you to go back to verse 15 of chapter 9 and underline that, highlight it, circle it, uh, make sure it stands out in your Bible. Because it answers this question about the Messiah. Why did he have to die? Why did he have to die? And Hebrews 9.15 uh, says this, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance now, that he has died. You need to underline those words, now that he has died. The Old Testament promised a new covenant. The new covenant was ready to be in place, but only after the Messiah died. If you look at Hebrews 9.15 in the New King James Version, it's, it's even, it even points it out a, a little better in our English vernacular. I think it will be on the screen. It, it may be 
in, uh, in your sermon notes. Yeah, it is. Hebrews 9.15 in the New King James. And for this reason, he, Jesus, the meteor of a, of a new covenant, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. So Jesus did this. How, how did he bring in the new covenant? Um, by his death. The, the, it starts with, with for this reason. Um, for this reason, the Messiah has to die. What reason? The answer is uh, ending our separation from the presence of God. Because we are still, Hebrews 9, 1 through 10 points out, because we are still separated from God, not able to be close to him, not able to be forgiven, not able to live for him, because of those things, the new covenant had to come about, and it had to come about by means of death. The Messiah had to die for any of those things to be accomplished. Now, John MacArthur says of, of this thought, it's really interesting. He said, this truth introduces the subject of the death of Christ, the Messiah, the idea which has always been a stumbling block to the Jews. Despite predictions of his death in their own scriptures, see Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, it was a truth they preferred to ignore, if not just actually deny. They constructed their own ideas about the Messiah. Many of the ideas weren't scriptural. Some were partially scriptural. Some were unscriptural altogether. They couldn't be faulted, of course, for having a limiting, limited understanding of Messiah, for God had only given limited revelation. The problem was that they had ignored some messianic truth and had tried to fill in the blanks on their own, and a dying Messiah simply didn't fit into their theology. So the author of Hebrews says you have to understand for the new covenant to happen, the Messiah has to die. Why did he have to die? The author is going to tell us, and here's what he's going to do. He's going to expertly lay out seven what I call irrefutable, irrefutable arguments of why the Messiah had to die. We actually just read them all. Um, but as we read across them, you probably didn't understand them. F.F. F. Bruce is a Bible scholar, the Bible scholar of Bible scholars. And I love what he says here real simply. He says, it's not easy to follow the argument in the English version of Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. I mean, it's, kind of, it's, a, it's a choppy text. It's hard to read it and totally understand what is, is being said. But what was just presented to us was seven reasons. Uh, I think your sermon notes say six. That is my fault. Nope, Liz actually fixed it. Good job, Liz. Um, seven reasons that Jesus had to die. What are the seven reasons Jesus had to die? According to Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, uh, reason number one. Which is, I mean, it makes sense. Uh, the author says a will can't take, effect, can't take effect until the one who willed it dies. I don't know if you caught it, but in Hebrews 9, 16 and 17, he said, listen, for us to be close to God, the Messiah had to die. And you're wondering why he had to die? Let me give you some reasons. First and foremost, 9, 16 and 17. He says, in the case of a will... It's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. So you and I get this, right? For the, those of you men and women who have a will, um, for anyone in your life to collect your inheritance laid out in your will, they have to prove that you're dead. Uh, you have to die before everything you've willed can go away. And they're saying God made a promise to give people a relationship with him that only God can keep. And only by the death of the Son of God does it take effect. What, what was God's promise? Well, his will, or what we would say his covenant, to Israel was given in the Abrahamic covenant. And we read that. We studied that. Just to rehearse it again, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, here's God's will to the world. God says, I am going to leave you this. God says to Abram, get out of your country from your family, father's house, to a land that I'll show you. I'll make you a nation. I'll bless you. Make your name great. You shall be a blessing. All those apply really to the nation of Israel. So I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse him who curses you. But he says, in you, you need to underline this on your sermon notes if this is on here, 
all the families of earth shall be blessed. God said, I'm going to do something through the nation of Israel. And as we study through the Old Testament, that nation of Israel, it becomes a person known as the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. That person is going to do something to bless the entire world. It's, he's going to give them access to me to be close to me. But the only person who can fulfill that will, who can give that inheritance, is the person who made it, God. The author of Hebrews says it never takes effect while the one who made it is living. So if Jesus would have just lived his normal life, he, he, we never could have collected on the inheritance that God said he'd give us. An inheritance of a will can't be legally taken by those named in the will, everyone on earth, until the one who's made it has died. So the author of Hebrews says you have to understand Jesus had to die. The Son of God had to die to collect on God's promises to us. Uh, you, you can imagine if your kids came to you tomorrow and said, hey, Dad, I want to, my portion of the inheritance. Um, you know, you'd say, well, you, you, know, you can't have that right now in the will. And if they said, well, how do I get that? I don't know that you'd answer. Well, you, you've got to kill me. Um, and then you can have it. I don't know that you would freely volunteer that. But that's what God did. God says the only way for you to collect on this, it, this is, according to Scripture, if the Son of God is given up and dies, then you can collect on the blessing of being close to me. So the Son of God will come and, and he'll die and all the families of earth will be blessed according to Hebrews chapter 9. Reason number two. Say, why did the Messiah have to die? Well, according to the Bible, every covenant that God had, by the way, covenant is the word promise. Every promise that God ever made was sealed with a sacrificial death. Every time God ever promised to do something that would create relationship between, between he and humanity, every time there was a sacrifice that kind of sealed that covenant in blood. Uh, not just with Moses. And by the way, Moses' covenant is referred to here as the first covenant. Sometimes it's called the Sinaitic covenant because it was given at Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses' covenant was sealed with blood. But the Abrahamic covenant was sealed with blood. Uh, the Noahic covenant was sealed with blood. By the way, if you really want to connect the dots of Scripture, you have to understand what we would call covenant theology or how the Bible fits together. We're probably going to do four of these nights a year where we just come for really in-depth teaching and learning. Uh, and I'm praying about this fall, teaching through the covenants of Scripture. So you can understand how Adam connects to Noah, connects to Abraham, connects to Moses, connects to David, connects to Jesus. When you understand that, everything, I mean, as much as you're learning tonight, everything from Genesis to Revelation, when you understand how the covenants piece together, um, I mean, it just makes everything so crystal, crystal clear spiritually, but it takes several hours to teach. Them. You can't teach that in 30 or 45 minutes. Um, in Hebrews 9, uh, 18 through 20, here's what the author said. This is why even the first covenant wasn't put into effect without blood. So God made a promise, but it took blood to seal the promise. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, branches of hyssop, and he sprinkled on the scroll on all the people, and he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. So every covenant was sealed with blood. Moses' covenant, Exodus 24, 3 through 8. This is right as the law ended. Remember we talked about lamb to law, law to lamb. Right as the law ended in Exodus 24, tabernacles laid out in Exodus 25. It says in Exodus 24, he took the book of the covenant. He read it in the hearing of the people. They said, everything God said will do, will be obedient. Moses took the blood. He sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to these words. Every time God makes a promise, it's sealed with the death. Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15, 6 through 18. 
God made all these promises to Abraham of I'll do all these things. And, and what we would call what we're getting ready to read about in Genesis 15 is a blood covenant. This is an ancient Near Eastern, which means if you study history 4,000 years ago, one way you transacted business was one of the ways you could do it was through a blood covenant, which means if you were seriously going to give somebody something, you would each take one of your animals, you would cut them in half, you would, eat, you would walk through the pieces of your bull, they would walk through the pieces of, of their bull or heifer, and it basically said, if I break this covenant, you can kill me. It, it was a, what was called a blood covenant. You would pay with your life. God did this with Abraham. Genesis 15, 6 through 11 and verse 17. God said, Abraham, I'm going to do this. Abraham believed the Lord and he accounted it for righteousness. So he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. That's a, a physical place where Abraham moved from to give you this land, Israel, to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how will I know that I'm going to inherit it? Prove to me you're going to fulfill this promise. So he said, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Um, then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite each other, but he didn't cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch symbolizing God that passed between those two pieces. Moses said, you know, promise me that you're, that you're really going to keep your word. And God said, I'll promise you in the strongest way possible. We'll perform a blood covenant. Now, I would have been in trouble if I was Abraham at this point because there's no way I would even know where to get a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. I would have just said, you know what, I trust you. I, I, I can't catch a pigeon um, or any of those other things. I mean, just that in itself is very impressive that Abraham was able to assemble all these things. Uh, but God said, I promise. I promise you can trust me. Uh, and then there was the Noahic covenant. Say, so what's the Noahic covenant? For those of you who have studied a little bit of scripture, in Genesis chapter 6, the world was flooded. Um, and at the end of the flood, when almost everyone perished, God said, I'm never, uh, never going to uh, destroy the earth with a flood again. I promise, told Noah and his family to go live life, start life on earth over again. And God said, I'll give you a sign. By the way, if we study the covenants together, every covenant was sealed with blood and a sign. There was a sign to every covenant. The sign of the Noahic covenant was the rainbow. Now, for those of you who know scripture, God said, every time there's a rainbow in the sky, remember that I won't destroy the earth again uh, with a flood. So every time it's a rainy day and you kind of see a rainbow, I think, man, that's really cool. God told us every time we see a rainbow that, uh, that he won't destroy the earth with a flood, but he's going to give time for people to come to Jesus. Uh, Genesis 8, 20 through 21. So Noah, after this covenant, built an altar to the Lord. He took every clean animal, every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. And the Lord said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of his heart is evil from his youth, nor will I ever again destroy every living thing as I have done. So every time God made a promise to enhance his relationship with people, it was sealed with the blood covenant. So the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, it only makes scriptural sense that the new covenant given in Jeremiah 31 would be sealed in the same way the first covenant was sealed. If all of them were sealed in blood, why wouldn't the last one be sealed in blood? You say, what is that new covenant? We've read those. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. It won't be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors. You say, what covenant? These three we're looking at right here. Moses, Abrahamic covenant. It's not going to be like all the other ones. When I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke them. Though I was a husband to them, this new covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after that time. I'll put my law in their minds, write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. He's basically saying, listen, I'm going to change them from the inside out, which is what Jesus promised in Matthew 26, 28. This is my blood of the new covenant. God's going to begin to change people from the inside out. 
And it's going to be shed for the many for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. So the author says, look at the Old Testament. Every covenant needed a sacrifice to solidify it. The new covenant needs a sacrifice. A sacrifice can only be the sacrifice of somebody related to God because it's, it's his covenant. Only he can die and give it away. So it's got to be God's son. Reason number three. And this, I'm just following the text here in Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, the author reminds us that the sanctuary where God dwells can only be cleansed by blood. The Bible's taught us that. The sanctuary can only be cleansed by blood. In verses 21 and 23, in the same way, Moses sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in the ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Underline that part if you haven't already. And just in your Bible, out beside that, what verse is that specifically? 22, 922. I want you to underline 922. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And just in like the margin of your Bible, just write Adam and Eve. I told you this was a, a second, uh, a, a part two um, analogy, but from the very first sin, something from the, from the very first sin, something was killed to offer forgiveness. From that one all the way through, something would die to offer forgiveness. In the sanctuary, the way to God was always cleansed with sacrifice. It was necessary then, verse 23, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So the first tabernacle, we've studied this, was clearly cleansed with the blood of a sacrifice. We know that. We studied it. We read it. Exodus 29, I'm not going to read all, all through that. I'm going to try to cut through some of this to keep moving. But Exodus 29, verses 10 and 11, 15, 16, 19, 20, 44 through 46, shows Moses sprinkling each part of the tabernacle. Every part of the, the tabernacle, every part of the way to God was paved with the blood of a sacrifice. And only, according to Scripture, only after, and you need to circle that word after. I think this is a blank in your sermon note. Only after, circle that word after, the sacrifice and cleansing by the blood could God's presence come and dwell among the people of Israel. Never happened until the blood was shed. Never. Not in the first tabernacle. Not when David brought the tabernacle from someone's attic. Remember, it was set up, tear down type of thing. It could be folded up and put away. When Solomon eventually built the temple. Never until after the sacrifices did God's presence come and be with them. And not only did God's presence come, but the Bible says there's no forgiveness. No forgiveness unless the shedding of blood. The Hebrew people clearly understood the power of blood to protect them in the face of their judgment against sin. How? The doorway. Exodus 12, 12 and 13, I'll pass through the land of Egypt on that night. I'll strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt. I'll execute my judgment. I'm the Lord. Now the blood will be a sign. We know that. Man, I hope if you, if you don't remember anything else from tonight, you never forget the picture of this doorframe. It's always... The protection of God has always come from being under the blood that God provides. His best protection would still provide blood for our sacrifices. Leviticus 17.11, we've read through this too. The life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement. Was that cover up the things you've done wrong? For it's the blood that makes atonement for the soul. It's a blood that causes our souls to be one. How many of you remember that old hymn? Uh, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the... What can make me whole again? Nothing but the... Yeah, see, all those things, all that blood in those songs makes so much sense when you understand this. If they don't, it just sounds awkward. 
Um, and you can understand why the Romans thought that, that uh, early Christians were cannibals and atheists. All this fascination with blood and drinking blood, and all, you know, it's, just, it's, it's weird if you don't have Old Testament context to understand, and then it makes perfect sense. It's how God has always worked. So the author is going to say, listen, if the earthly tabernacle was cleansed with the blood of a sacrifice, then certainly the heavenly tabernacle is going to be cleaned the same way, except the sacrifice is going to be better. Old Testament sacrifice that gets us to God one day a year, blood, lamb, calves. New covenant sacrifice, which allows us to live with God every day, it's going to be perfect. The perfect lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, we'll review that again. When Christ, Messiah, came as high priest, of the good things that are now already here, he went through a greater and more perfect tabernacle. That means he went to, through the real way. But the Bible says that, that when, uh, when Jesus died, he eventually went to his father where he redeemed us. Remember what he said to Mary Magdalene when she came and cried on him? Not yet, I haven't been to my father yet. This death would allow him to enter heaven to be right at God's side so that he could represent us before God 24 hours a day. Um, he's going to go through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not a part of his creation. He didn't enter it by the means of the blood of goats and calves. Instead, he entered that most holy place, representing where the presence of God lives once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and ashers of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they're outwardly clean for a day, I should add. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself in blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that leads to death so that we can serve the living God. So why did Jesus have to die? Well, Jesus had to die because a will can't take effect until the one who has willed it has died. Jesus had to die because the tabernacle was always cleansed with, God, cleansed with blood and, and every covenant was culminated with a sacrifice. Reason number four, Jesus had to die so that the heavenly sanctuary could be opened. Because remember, until now it was closed, except for one day a year, one guy out of the entire human race, one day a year, could go be near to God. But God said there's going to be a day when anyone in the world can be close to me if they will go through Jesus. Hebrews 9, 24 through 28, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear before us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place, every year with the blood that's not even his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times in the sense of the creation of the world. But he's appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages. Underline that, that phrase, culmination of the ages. Literally, that means at the time of the new covenant. At the time that all of history has been looking for, forward to, the new covenant with God and humanity are close. At this time, the culmination of the ages, Jesus did this to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. He'll appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So I want you to check this out. The Old Testament high priest went into a tent that some days was in the desert, some, some days it was in Moab, some days it was, you know, kind of set up closer to Israel, some days it was in Jericho. I mean, it was just kind of all over the place. Um, but they would set up a tent, and, you know, it didn't have any lighting in it, and, you know, there were no light balls, and had a light of candle, and even when he went into the most holy place, you know, it was dark, it had incense burning all over it. 
Um, it, you know, it was just a tent. And even when it was a building, it was, just, it was just a room. But the Bible says Jesus didn't go into a tent, and Jesus didn't go into a building. The Bible says Jesus went to heaven itself. He went to the very throne room of God. He went to heaven itself in God's presence. He actually went straight to God, not a box that symbolized God. He went straight to God. Why? So he could open access not just to God's earthly presence, but to God's actual presence. And man, if you're in this room and you have ever felt God's actual presence, you know it. I mean, you just know it when it happens. Sometimes it happens during worship. Sometimes it happens in, in a moment of prayer. Sometimes it happens in a really overwhelming circumstance when you just feel peace in your heart. Sometimes it happens when, you know, b before you were a Christian, you really didn't even focus on God, and now it's just, you, you just like seem to live with the spirit of, you know, God is here, he's around. The only reason any of us have ever felt that is because Jesus unlocked that door so that you and I could be near the presence of God, but he had to die to unlock that door. But he only had to do it once. Love what the author says. He says he didn't have to offer himself again and again. The Old Testament high priest, every year for all of eternity, once a year, go in the room. Jesus didn't have to do that. He didn't have to die once a year, every year. He had to do it once. He had to do it once. And after he died, the door is unlocked forever so that we can, when we need God, we can go see him. It's, uh, it's interesting. If, if you've grown up in the Catholic Church, um, and I, I love studying church history, and because of my love for church history, I have an extreme love and respect for the Catholic Church. Because if you, if you look closely at Christianity today, the Catholic Church preserved all the writings, all the history, all the locations of modern-day Christianity. Um, I have a deep love and respect for what the Catholic Church means to modern-day Christianity. So by no means, please don't feel like I'm bashing the Catholic Church. But if you've been to a Catholic Church, they believe during communion, and there's a lot of different teaching on this, um, but they believe instead of representing the blood and body of Christ, that the, the body and blood of Christ actually becomes, the, the wafer and the juice actually becomes body and blood. Like it actually becomes the body of Jesus. It transfers into that. It's called transubstantiation. It becomes the body and blood of Christ so that it will heal us spiritually. Well, this verse right here says it doesn't need to become it over and over and over again. If you've ever been to a Catholic Mass, they're really interesting because they, they do the whole thing in Latin. And the priest, he'll hold up the bread, and he'll say, hoc est, cors hoc est corpum, which means this is your body. It, you know, it's not bread anymore. Hoc est corpum. It literally becomes the body. That phrase was so overused in history um, that little kids would go, and little kids thought any time you turned something into something else, you'd say hoc est corpum. And it became the phrase hocus pocus. If you've heard the phrase hocus pocus, that came from the Catholic priest transferring one thing to another thing. And if you've ever said hocus pocus, that comes from the Latin phrase of the Catholic priest making that bread actual body. But the Bible says it doesn't need to happen again and again, over and over and over. Happen once, the door's unlocked. It doesn't ever have to be uh, opened again. In 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 25, that's why Paul says we do this in memory. Uh, Paul's teaching the Corinthian church how to do what we're going to do at the end of this uh, time, take communion. He said, I receive from the Lord, which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It just helps you remember what I've done. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup in the new covenant of my blood. 
This do as often as you drink it to remember me. See, how many times have you taken communion and not even realized that what you're doing is remembering that Jesus brought the new covenant? Because the Passover, the tabernacle, the day of atonement, they all fail us. They don't get us close to God. But the new covenant, this, this little thing we do, we remember, man, thank God for Jesus and what he did because he allowed us to be close to God. The Bible says, why did he do it? Two words, great two words. He did it for us. Why did he do it? For us. For the people in this room. For the person in your chair. For the kids that you left at home. For your neighbors. For our community. For this state. For this world. He did it for us. The Messiah did it for us. Why? So we could have a relationship with God. Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Man, I hope that verse is on your sermon notes. Is it? I don't know where I am. Somebody talk to me. Yeah. You need to underline on your sermon notes, interceding for us. You know what that means? It means praying for you. Have you ever sat back in your chair and comprehended the thought that Jesus prays for you? Jesus prays for you. You say, well, man, how you know, I, I, I met this new person and they brought me to church and you know, it's just so cool how coincidence works. No, Jesus was praying for you. That's why that person approached you at work and invited you to church. Jesus was praying for you, which is why you met the husband or wife that you married that strengthened your faith. Jesus was praying for you, which is why you made it through your divorce when you thought you were just going to die. Jesus was praying for you, which is why you could make it through that miscarriage or that loss of your child or that bout with cancer. Jesus was praying for you. He did it for you so that he could go to God and he could be at God's right hand saying, Hey, hey God, hey God, Christian Newsom, he needs this today. Can you help him with that? Jesus prays for us, the Bible says. It's one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture. Why? Because he loves us. And because he loves us, he took our place. He became our substitute. Remember that lamb? Something had to be killed so God could forgive something? Jesus said, I'll do it. I don't want Christian to have to do it. I don't want Danielle to have to do it. I'll do it. I'll be their substitute. You see, the Bible says the judgment of sin. And what is sin? Falling short of God's perfect standards. It demanded death. Where? Romans 3.23 or Romans 3.23 and 6.23 show us this together. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are perfect. Well, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin, imperfection, is death. Uh-oh. Okay, so I'm not perfect, so I've got to die? No, because the gift of God is, is eternal life in Jesus our Lord. Somebody had to die, but it wasn't you. I love Hebrews 9.27. People are destined to die once. Everyone in this room is going to die. And after that, we're going to face the judgment. And what we're going to ask is, is our death, our eternal death, going to be the punishment for our sins? Or is Jesus' death going to be the punishment for our sins? And that's what we talk about. When we talk about accepting Christ, that means I freely and willingly allow Jesus to pay for my sins, and I will follow him now. You see, John MacArthur, again, another great scholar of Scripture, says all men have to die. Our death is by divine appointment. It's one appointment everyone keeps. After death comes judgment, which is also appointed by God. And since men, listen, since men are not able to atone for their own sins, God's judgment demands that they pay for it or they have a substitute to pay for them. See, when we talk about rejecting Jesus, you're saying, I'll pay myself. I'll stand before God and say, hey, I'll stand here on my own merit. Listen, if you're like me, you're not good enough to stand before God and say, I was perfect. But you're smart enough to say, Jesus was, and I'll let him take my place. You know, Jesus died for sins, 
but not his, ours. That's what the Bible says here. Jesus died for sins, but not his, ours. Let me ask you a question to let you picture this in your head. How many crosses were there on the hill that day when Jesus died? Three. How many of them were made for Jesus? Zero. You see, three men that day were sentenced to die, and one of them was named Barabbas. Barabbas had a cross that was made for him. It was already pre-made. It was already sitting out behind Pilate's temple. Right? And, and it was the custom of the Jews that on one day, somebody who'd been sentenced to die, somebody whose cross had already been made, could be released if they were sentenced to die. And Jesus pulled Barabbas and Jesus up, and, and, and Pilate pulled back Barabbas and Jesus up, and he said, which one do you want to die, and which one do you want to go free? And they all cried, let Barabbas go free. He said, what do you want me to do with Jesus? They crucify him. So he gave Jesus Barabbas' cross, and Jesus hung on Barabbas' cross, and Barabbas got to go free. Listen, Barabbas didn't go free because he was innocent. He went free because somebody took his place. Man, that deserves an amen. You know what amen means? That means that's right. Preach it, Christian. That Jesus, Barabbas, listen. <laughs> Barabbas didn't go free because he was innocent. He went free because somebody took his place. You and I don't go to heaven because we're innocent. We go to heaven because Jesus takes our place on that cross. He dies so that we don't have to. That's the way it works. Because sin always has to be punished by death. And you can accept it as, as your own death, or you can let Jesus die for you, and you can live for him. That's the way Christianity works. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He took our punishment so that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. He took our punishment so we could become more like God and become close to God. That's how Christianity works. And it says after He did that, He rose from the grave. He appeared a second time for those who were waiting on Him. Man, this is so cool because this is Old Testament language now. This was symbolic of the relief felt when the high priest came out of the Holy of Holies alive. We looked at this picture of the tabernacle, and what would happen is that high priest once a year would go in to... to to ask God to cover the people's sins up. And one of the parts of the Old Testament we didn't read is that the, the high priest, when he went into that room, he would tie a belt around his waist, and the priest on the outside of the temple would have hold of that, would have hold of that belt, and he had little bells along the bottom of his little outfit that he wore, because they knew if he went in there before his sins were forgiven, like his sons, they dropped down dead, and they kept a belt on him, or a rope on him, so that if the high priest, if the bells quit clanging, they knew he was dead. They could jerk him out with a rope because they knew if they went in too that, that, that they were going to die. So when the high priest went in, the people would surround the tent and you can imagine, they would stand on their tippy toes the whole time. Is he out yet? Is he out yet? Are we forgiven? Are our sins covered? Do we have any relationship with God? And then when they saw him come out, it was like, praise God, we're close to God for a day. Now we have 364 more days of living in separation. That's the thought here that Jesus not only died, but he came back out and said, it's done, it's accomplished. Remember what he said on the cross? It is, it's finished, it's over, I did it. I did it. Everything's okay now. That's what Jesus did for us. It's just starting to get good, right? I mean, we're three hours in now, and it's just starting to get good. Why did Jesus have to die? Reason number five, because the old sacrifices couldn't take away sins forever. Couldn't remove us from our sin. Where? Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can't ever by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they wouldn't have stopped being offered. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would have no longer felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. 
It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why couldn't the old sacrifices take away sins? Three key words, because they were just a shadow. They were just symbols of the real sacrifice that was going to come later. It was supposed to train our eyes to look for a real sacrifice. But those year after year after year after year, you say, well, do they still offer those sacrifices? Yes. Have you ever heard of the day Yom Kippur? It's the Day of Atonement. This year, there will be a day when the, the, those who live in the, Judeo, the, the Jewish faith will be able to have their sins forgiven. One day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And then they'll go back to wait in 364 more days. Man, what I wouldn't give for them to understand that Jesus died for them and they don't have to do that all over every year, time after time after time after time. Just symbols of a real sacrifice, Jesus. Key word, they, stopped, they, they, uh, <clears throat> they never stopped being offered. Over and over and over. They had to be offered continually, which means they were never efficient for eternity, only, one, only for one year. And then after a year, it's like renewing your tags in the state of Missouri. You get them for a year, and then you've got to go back through the whole inspection cycle process, unless you get them for two, and then you've got to go back through two uh, and do it again. Jesus died once. Your sins are forgiven forever. Key words, impossible. The author of Hebrews says it's impossible that the, the old covenant stuff can change you forever. It doesn't make you perfect enough to approach God's presence directly. This is where we ended part one. Okay, on this one day I'm forgiven, but I can't, I can't go in the holy of holies. I can't, I can't cuddle up next to God's presence and cry because of the tragedy in my life. I can't go directly and ask God a question because um, I'm hurting in my life, in my marriage, in my relationship, in my health. I can't go to God directly. I, this other guy can. He can only do it once. The author says, why, why not pursue Jesus who, can, who, who opens the doorway forever? Reason number six, why did the Messiah have to die? Because the Old Testament said he was going to die as a better sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 5 through 9 quotes a scripture from Psalm where it says that the Son of God, the Messiah, would die. Therefore, as Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you didn't desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings. You weren't pleased. So I said, here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, my God. So he said, sacrifice, offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings you didn't desire, nor were you pleased, though they were offered in accordance with the law. So he said, here I am. I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first. He establishes the second. I can die. I can do this. I can, I can bring people close to God. The author of Hebrews, just like he always does, takes us back to the Old Testament for proof that the Messiah would have to be sacrificed. He always goes straight back to the Old Testament. I'm going to skip down to John 3.10 in these three verses that we're going to read. You need to understand that in Jesus' day, the, the experts of the Old Testament law didn't understand the parts about the Messiah. That's why Jesus asked Nicodemus in John chapter 3.10, he said, listen, you're Israel's teacher. You don't understand these things? You don't understand what the Old Testament says about the Messiah coming to be sacrificed for the new covenant? You don't get it? The Old Testament says the Messiah would be a better sacrifice, but I want you to watch how this works because the author of Hebrews is just a genius in writing something we understand. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8 says this. Here's what he's quoting. But I want you to notice the subtle change. Psalm 40, 6 through 8, a messianic psalm says this. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, my ears you have opened. Burn offering and sin offering you did not require. Therefore I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It's written about me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God, and your law is within my heart. That's the Messiah speaking to God. In Psalm 46 through 8, he doesn't say a body you prepared for me. He said, my ears you have opened. He said, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute here. Did the New Testament author change something? Did he take it out of context? Is this wrong a little bit? 
ears you have opened versus this thought of a body you've prepared for me. So is there a good answer for the change? Yes, the author of Hebrews, all he has done is tried to take us down the path that Psalm 46 through 8 gives for us. The, the best translation of a body you've, uh, uh, my ears you have opened in the Hebrew language is my ears you have hollowed. It's the thought of a potter on a potter's wheel who is going to make a human body and he begins with the head by holding his fingers in place where the ears will be and then letting that clay begin to shape and then shaping from the ears, a head, and then a body. That's the picture that the psalmist is trying to create in line with Psalm 139 and Jeremiah 1.5, the thought that God shapes humanity. Psalm 139.13, you formed my inward parts. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the web, I know you say, well, why would, he, why would the psalmist use the word ears? Because it's the part of the body that denotes obedience through hearing. So here, here's what a body you've prepared for me. The best translation to, mo- to, to copy Psalm 46 through 8 so we'd understand it would be this. You made my body to be obedient to your will. You made my body to be obedient to your will. Does it not sound very reminiscent of what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying the night before today that's represented in history? God, please, no, I have to go to the cross. It's going to be so painful, so horrible. But God, not my will, your will. You see, this body you created was created to do your will, not mine. Matthew 26, 39 says, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible... Please may this cup be taken from me, but not as I will, as you will. If your will is for my body to be obedient to the cross so that people can be close to you, I'm in. Because you made body, my body to be obedient to your will. And then reason number seven, why did the Messiah have to die? Because once it happened, holy people, according to God in Leviticus chapter 11, can have fellowship with a holy God. And that's what we've been striving for since the law was given. The lamb got us to the law. The law got us to the lamb. But the, eventually the new covenant got us to John 1.29, the perfect lamb of God. Hebrews 10.10 says, by that will. What will? God's will. We've been made holy. Finally, after all this time, we've been made holy. How? Through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So if we study Scripture immediately after the crucifixion of Jesus, after what I would say, after the cross in Matthew 27, verses 50 through 61, and we're only going to read through 54, immediately after Jesus died on the cross, here's what happened. When Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple, hang on, is this on your notes? Man, you need to circle curtain of the temple, right? Why? What did the curtain of the temple do? separated us from God. The curtain was ripped open. How was it ripped open? I can't hear you. Symbolizing that who tore it open? God. See, as soon as Jesus died, God said, come on in. The house is open. My presence is open to you. At that moment, the curtain of the temple, separation from God was ended, torn from top from two. The earth shook. The rocks split. The tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who died were raised to life. They came out of the tomb after Jesus' resurrection. They went into the holy city appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. So what happened? Right after the death of Jesus, what happened? Three things. Man's separation from God was ended. It was over. Man had full access 
to God's presence, real and in their life. Secondly, physical death was defeated. You see, we talk about eternal life. We talk about heaven when we talk about becoming a Christian. Why? Because when Jesus died, death was defeated and eternal life was granted to all who would live forever with Jesus in heaven after their death. If they would say, hey, God, I don't think I'm good enough. I'm going to let Jesus stand for me. And then third, Jesus was recognized as the Savior of the world by a person who was unchurched. We talk about in our church, reaching people who are far from God. This centurion was a Roman. He probably worshipped the Roman gods, if anything at all. He was, a, he was a barbarian of a man if he was a Roman soldier. And he stood there and he recognized that Jesus was the Savior of the world. He said, what does it mean for those of us who are Christians? Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. We'll finish here. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. What does it mean? When we really begin to understand this as Christians, what does it mean for us? It means this. The author says, listen, once you understand all this, here's your job. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, therefore, hey, since we are Christians who have gone into the presence of God and haven't been killed for being there, since we have the confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great... Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, here's our responsibility, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. That means I know that I know. How do you know? My faith. Can I prove it? No, but my faith, man, my faith knows that God loves me and is near me because we've had our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience. Not our bodies, our hearts and we've had our bodies washed with pure water, then let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That means I not only live for me, but I love to help other Christians move forward spiritually. Not giving up meeting together. Hey, don't get too busy to go to church, as some already are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, when you really understand the cross, when you really understand the cross, here's a natural reaction. You begin to get real close to God in your life. You begin to get real close to other Christians in your life. And you figure out together how you can help other people get from point A to point B, like we've talked about in our whole Live Sent series. Now here's how I want to wrap up tonight. First and foremost, in just a minute, we're going to do communion, and we're going to say thank you. We're going to remember what the blood of the new covenant means for us. But before we do that, if you're in here tonight and you're not a Christian, and maybe tonight you finally get what being a Christian means. You're ready to change place. You're ready to step out of the place of responsibility. Say, Jesus, you take my place, and I'll, I'll accept your sacrifice and try to live for you. If you're in here and you're ready to do that, then tonight the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is pray to become a Christian. You say, how do I do it? It's real simple, man. The, the curtain has been torn. All you do is walk in. You just walk in. And God accepts you because of what Jesus has done for you. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. And if you're in here tonight and you're not a Christian, but you're ready tonight because you finally understand it to become a Christian, then just pray this prayer. You don't even have to pray it out loud, but pray it in your heart. Dear God, man, I want to be close to you. And I realize that your perfect standard of life doesn't allow for that to happen because my imperfection is counted as sin that has to be judged. But God, tonight I realize that someone is willing to take my place. 
Jesus, the Messiah. So tonight I accept his sacrifice as my substitute. And I will commit to try to follow him. Not because I can become perfect. That's impossible. But because I need him to be close to you. I choose Jesus. Like Barabbas chose Jesus. I choose Jesus. And I ask that you let me walk away. Not innocent, but forgiven. Come into my heart and life. Change me. Allow me to be close to you. And Lord, help me to bring others close to you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, please, nobody looking around. If you just prayed that prayer tonight, accepted Jesus' sacrifice for you and became a Christian, with every head bowed and every eye closed around this room, would you just slip your hand up and down, Christian, tonight I prayed that prayer. Tonight I choose Jesus. Now, Heavenly Father, I pray for the men and women in this room that we will never again, ever, ever, ever again think of Good Friday and Easter and the Lamb of God and the blood and the new covenant and the forgiveness of sins the same way. But we'll understand what you've done for us to get us close to you. Jesus, we come to you tonight and we thank you that you have become our Passover lamb. We thank you that you have become, Lord, the lamb that gains entrance to the tabernacle. And Lord, the Lamb that on the Day of Atonement both forgives our sin and takes it away. You're both the Lamb and the scapegoat. We thank you that in the New Covenant that you became obedient to God's will for your body to die so that we don't have to. Thanks for taking our place. We'll never forget it. In Jesus' name.